Hello and welcome to a special edition of Learning Rewired, a show dedicated to reshaping the way leaders think about learning in their personal and organizational development. I am your host, Bevan Rees. And in this week's episode, we consider the topic of resilience, why it is critical for individuals and businesses in a post-pandemic economy, how to foster it, and what not to do if you wish to build a resilient organization. You will hear contributions from leading thinkers and practitioners in conversation with Headspring, considering resilience from multiple perspectives. So, without any further delay, let's dive right in. We begin our review with the most obvious question. What is resilience? Marie-Louise Maivolt, a leadership development specialist and member of Headspring faculty, offers an interpretation of resilience that goes beyond the standard definition. It's crucial right now during the times of Corona, but it's been crucial before that we have a system that gets stressed, that gets pushed together. And like the spring, it kind of bounces back and it's back in its original position. I don't think that's enough. I think being back in your original position just is enough anymore. We need to grow and develop both as individuals, as teams, as organizations. So I wanted to bring in the concept of anti-fragility, how systems need that pressure and that stress to grow, to develop and to become better. So think of your spring not just bouncing back into its original position, but actually becoming better. The type of development that Marie-Louise calls for starts with the individual and then ripples out into teams, organizations and the world beyond. Claire Dale and Patricia Payton experts in somatic optimization and authors of physical intelligence suggest that resilience is not a talent we are born with. It is an aptitude that can be cultivated through conscious self-management. It involves regulation of our brain chemistry, which does not only benefit the individual, it also leads to higher organizational performance. Resilience, of course, really important with the pace of change as it is at the moment to be able to keep cortisol levels, the stress chemical, long term at an optimal level so that all of the other chemicals that create high performance can reboot. Mm -hmm. We can bounce back from disappointments. We can handle the pressure of change more easily because our whole system is bouncier and more mm -hmm. resilient. Mm -hmm. And then endurance. So under pressure when tomorrow, the next week, the next month seem like one constant stream of demanding and tough jobs, tasks, interventions, decisions, that we can focus on the future and be able to focus our chemistry on creating a reward system that enables us to believe in the future and accentuate purpose that draws us through what we call an endurance tunnel. Inside us, chemicals such as testosterone, serotonin, oxytocin, these chemicals that dictate our, our confidence levels and our risk tolerance, our sense of ease and well-being and therefore the ease at which we can properly connect, help others perform at their best and, and create a culture of high performance. That's paramount mm -hmm. to leadership and a culture of you know, incredibly high performance. Uh, well, I think it's interesting for people to understand that there are actually 400 chemicals racing through each of our bodies. And those chemicals are hormones and neurotransmitters. And they're running through our bloodstream and our nervous system all the time. 
Claire mentioned a few that we can and should actively influence. There are others that are doing their job just fine and we wouldn't want to touch. So physical intelligence, as Claire said, is the ability to detect and actively manage those because they dictate how we think, how we feel, how we speak, and how we behave. And most of us operate largely at the mercy of those chemicals mm. without realizing that we can actively manage the levels of those chemicals so that we can achieve more, stress less, live more happily, et cetera, et cetera, to achieve this culture where everyone is taking care of themselves and their own well-being. And what most organizations don't realize, also impacting business results. Mm. So the more physically intelligent you are, the more cognitively intelligent you will be and the stronger your emotional intelligence also. So resilience is underpinned by physical well-being. Starting with this foundation, emotional energy, mental energy, even spiritual energy also have a profound impact on our ability to function resiliently. Here Sudanshu Palsule, award-winning educator, consultant and leadership coach, shares his five components of the beginner's mindset, which he believes is fundamental to fostering sustainable mental energy. And the beginner's mindset for me consists of five things that you can practice on a daily basis. The first one is generosity. Give of yourself. Be generous. With whatever you do, be generous. In the act of being generous, you open up parts of your mind that hitherto are closed. It also takes the focus away from who, you know, about yourself. It, it, you take it away from that self-obsessive thinking. It's about generosity. Number two, practice empathy. Empathy is one of the most complex functions we carry inside ourselves. Practice it. Show interest in the other part, in the other person's story. Show interest in what's going on. But it's not idle interest. Empathy is about truly trying to shift the perspective from you to the other. Right. So generosity, empathy. The third one is curiosity. Stay curious. You know, curiosity requires an innocence that we lose when we become experts. Stay curious. Ask questions about the world that feels like a child asking questions. You know, don't forget that some of the greatest scientific discoveries were born out of very innocent questions. The fourth one is humility. There's nothing like good old humility to clear your mind. All right, so these are all tested and proven things that you can try out for yourself. And the last one is openness, right? Openness. It's, it's easy to think about it, but you know what? The sound that we produce in our minds is much louder than anything outside. In order to hear those outside sounds, in order to listen to people, in order to be truly open to information that you may not even agree with in the first place, it, it's hard. It requires a lot of cognitive effort. But when you start practicing it, when you start truly practicing what it means to be open, you find that you start generating a new kind of mental energy inside you. As we have already heard, resilience is critical to survive and thrive in the current pace of change. But what if the rate of change itself is accelerating? Are businesses changing fast enough to keep up? Here's author, leadership consultant, and future of work specialist Adam Kingle discussing the need to make adaptability a habit. There have been wars, revolutions as far back as you can go, but the number of things that are changing at this pace, I think, is new. And so here's the question I want to ask. The most important question for any of us is, 
are we changing as fast as the world around us? And I think for a lot of us, the answer to this question is no. We took the world's 50 largest companies going back these different timeframes. And this x-axis is a measure of the standard deviation of year-on-year volatility in revenue growth rates. So the same would be true for profits. So what we're seeing is more and more volatility year to year in profitability. What that says basically is today's profits are a poorer and poorer predictor of tomorrow's profits. Um, in, in fact, you know there, there's a 30% probability that any company in the top 20% uh, of its industry in the top quintile will lose that ranking uh, in the next few years. So it all comes back to the simple conclusion. The world is becoming more turbulent faster than we are becoming more resilient. What does it usually take for people to challenge their fundamental assumptions about whether it's how they hit their KPIs, who their customer is, how to better serve them? How do they respond to shifts in their environment, like what we're dealing with right now? Almost all the stories of deep change are stories of crisis. In this new normal that we're in, change is fluid, not episodic. It's not convulsive. It's continuous. That's why it has to become a habit and one that you don't even have to think very hard about. It's part of your fabric. When we think about ourselves as leaders or managers or personally as professionals, is our professional life about building in more control or is it about building in more relevance? And that's part of what makes adaptability a habit is if we have that mindset. Thank you, Adam. But how can companies adapt to change more quickly and become more resilient? Vladka Hlupic, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Transformation at Holt Attridge Executive Education and Global Faculty Member at Headspring, argues that long-term organizational resilience requires humane workplaces that support healthy employee development. I asked her if this has always been true, or if this is especially a sign of our times. Uh, this has always been true of a business, but just many people did not have this awareness. I have been preaching those ideas for 15 years. Mm. Only recently, I, I see that people are, are getting it more and more, and they're realizing this is the, the only way to thrive and survive in the future. Now, everything uh, has now got a different dimension. With this pandemic, everything has been propelled to different ways of working, different ways of treating people in organizations as well. Organizations and leaders that are more humane, uh, that are more what I call level four and five of the management model. I will explain the levels in a minute. They will be able to survive and thrive in this new world that is emerging uh, in front of our eyes. So business as usual is not going to be an option. And now it is the time to operate in more humane ways, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but also from the economical point of view, there is a lot, lot of evidence that companies that are more humane, what I call level four and five, they do better financially as well. And there's a lot of data around that I can mention for example, I worked with a lot of companies over years and the average profit increase was about 100% in a year or 200% in two years once they went through this big, what I call the big shift and, and moving from traditional ways of working based on command and control, standardization, specialization. And that all worked well in the first industrial revolution where efficiency and productivity were the key. But it is no way that that would work in the fourth industrial revolution and the 
post-pandemic world as well, where a lot of work will be knowledge-based and it is knowledge-based already now. And we know that uh, knowledge workers ignore corporate hierarchy. They have to be treated as associates, not as subordinates. They can just withdraw cooperation. So in this new world that is emerging, it's going to be the only way to do well. And there's data from, from other scholars as well. So for example, Professor Sisodia and the team, they investigated so-called firms of endearment, which are based on strategic alignment of all stakeholders and not just short-term profit maximization for shareholders. Mm -hmm. And they found out that within 15 years, those firms of endearment outperformed S&P 500 index by 1,050%. And then there was also uh, some other studies, for example, Fortune's 100 Best Companies to Work For, which are focused on pride and trust. They achieved 300% higher stock market returns than S&P 500 in five years and so on. So the average figure is around 100% within a year. So it's not a nice thing to have, but it's the only way to operate. Humane workplaces are inherently more inclusive. But inclusion expert Stephen Frost maintains that this is not an arbitrary correlation. Diversity and inclusion are critical to a leader's ability to make good decisions and better manage her personal resources over time. If I'm talking to an exec and I'm trying to convince them of the pull factors for diversity inclusion, rather than sell them diversity inclusion, you simply I think we frame it 180 degrees and start with what is the problem we're trying to solve and how are you right now? And a lot of people find it hard to admit vulnerability that they are pretty stressed. They are pretty full up. They're pretty tired. They're pretty, you know, and it's no surprise when you think about the fact that doing a job today is infinitely harder than it was even 10 years ago. One of the major reasons being that the amount of information we have to process to do our jobs is increasing exponentially. As a rough kind of calculus, the amount of information that comes across our desks is roughly doubling every two years. So with that exponential growth in input we're supposed to absorb, we unfortunately don't have an exponential increase in our brain capacity and cognitive ability to process that information, right? So there's an increasing gap between what we're supposed to be able to do and what we're actually capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So there are these feelings of stress, inadequacy, never being on top of things, you know, so look, stop. What, what do we do about this? You know, do you give people more money? Do you give them more holiday? Do you give them flexible working? Do you sure all of those things? But fundamentally, we're in an impossible situation. And it doesn't matter how brilliant somebody is, they're not brilliant enough to compute all the variables and all the information required to make a good decision. So the only real kind of option, which is seldom really appreciated enough by people, is to actually surround yourself with as many different perspectives as you can possibly handle, Mm. who are more likely to check your blind spots, more likely to calibrate your thinking, more likely to help you make good decisions that you're incapable of doing on your own. And machine learning and AI alone won't do it because they're influenced by the same people who think like you. So actually, how do we see inclusion as this tremendous tool to include the resource of diversity to help us with the most pressing questions, the most pressing decisions we have to face right now? And so... Above and beyond all the kind of research we know, at a really, really primal level, in order to help oneself, right, in order to kind of be in one's own enlightened interest, how do we actually make use of diversity to improve the decisions we are accountable for? And I think 
you know, there's lots of good examples where we can show how that works. But for me, that would be an incredible pull factor if we could articulate it correctly for people who most need it right now and have empathy for people who appear to be, you know, unconcerned with diversity inclusion in the first place. We have been talking about environments which cultivate psychological safety and encourage greater individual resilience, eventually leading to better business results. Author, speaker and adaptability expert Jim Lawless believes this requires leaders to step up their own self-development. We are now in a situation where leaders, in my experience, who are able to provide an environment where it is safe to take those risks can see their people begin to take those risks, who are willing to train their people into what happens under the hood of being a human being when we face risk, try new things, and and therefore uh, go into an area of uncertainty. Uh, what, what that means physiologically, what that means mentally, what the different systems are that fire up and how to recognise them mm. and realise that you're not in mortal danger of a shark. You're just having a very natural human reaction to putting a new idea across in a meeting. We have a, I hate the phrase, middle management community who we have to support to enable their people to work in this new way. And we have to enable them to work in this new way. And this is a new skill set, a new area of managing risk and a new area of coaching, but in a very exciting 21st century way. Though the end goal remains organisational success, It's critical that leaders start with optimizing their own vitality in order to support the development of their teams. Dr. Nick Van Dam and Dr. Jacqueline Brassi, both of IE University and the Center for Learning Innovation, are co-authors of the book Advancing Authentic Confidence Through Emotional Flexibility. They argue that leaders need to realize that they are central to creating the environment needed to sustain group resilience. For leaders to uh, teams to perform well, um, it, it, they are under huge pressure, and therefore it's key for, for people to stay vital, you know. And as Jackie mentioned, um, this is not about, you know, kind of a, a short sprint. Um, many of us and, and, and people around us are basically running a marathon at this point in time. Um, so vitality is about, it's about health, it's our body, it's about well-being, our mind, And it's also about happiness. It's about, you know, meaning and purpose, as you see. It also starts with with yourself. Um, I've seen great examples in my environment of leaders that stood up and stayed calm and were all, and they're also in the eye uh, of the storm and uh, and feel, um, how do you say, you know, overwhelmed. Um, But there are some great examples around me that that I get a lot of energy from. So, uh, be aware that what you express and what you beam out has an impact on others. Uh, at the same time, you don't need to always hide it, but uh, it's it's all about this uh, uh, on purpose being calm. Um, and, and what helps to keep people focused um, is, I guess, uh, talk about an operating model that works for, for people in different ways. Everybody's in different situations. Make explicit agreements on what is possible in the moment and what is not, or what times are difficult and what times are uh, less uh, well to work. And then as a, as a core theme in everything that you do, have a conversation about what is truly valuable for us as a team. What are our values and what matters in the work that we do? And, and where do we... Uh, where do we want to work towards? So in the absence of a clear picture uh, and a clear uh, vision, you can still 
creates relative clarity to talk about, okay, we do not know maybe what's going to happen, but we may have scenario A, we may have scenario B, we may have scenario C, and whatever happens is that's the path we're going to walk. Now, if it is scenario D, the one that we didn't discuss, then let's make the make sure that for the uncertain scenario, we have a set of values and behaviors. If we have the uncertain situation, how do we want to work together? And that can vary from, you know, let's make sure then we have a code work to check code work this may be scenario d we need to talk again and so that creates a bit of uh, and and whatever happens we trust each other's intentions and so when when it really becomes tough and when they uh, um, when we all realize we're in this situation really now we don't know it anymore that we can grab back to what we agreed in this situation let's trust each other let's talk let's be open let's create that safety Leaders who are able to manage their own vitality and resources better are more able to create resilient and innovative teams. Alex Edmonds is Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. He posits that business resilience and sustainability are maximized when leaders go even further beyond their personal and organizational well-being to focus on delivering greater social value. I'm quite hopeful. So, so while obviously the crisis has been really devastating, I do think if there, there could be some silver linings in that it accelerates the, um, the idea of serving society. Often people think that responsibility is about paying your workers more, paying fair tax and um, serving the environment. And don't get me wrong, those are important things. But I say it's about innovating to come up with new ways to serve society, actively thinking creatively and innovating. And so that's how every company can help out in this crisis. So let's say, for example, Chelsea Football Club. Well, you might think, what does that have to do with the crisis? But what they do have is a hotel. And they're using the hotel to give it to doctors and nurses so that they can stay at the hotel after working in the hospital. They don't have to commute all the way home. Or you could have a really small business. So I go to this um, brutal gym in London and they're a small business, so they don't have money to give. So the desk staff, their main jobs for some of them is they're actors, but they take this desk job because acting is obviously a volatile um, profession. So as they're actors, their great um, skill is, is uh, entertainment. And you might think, how can entertaining really help in this crisis? But what we do have is a lot of parents, working parents with their kids at home, and they can't work with their kids being at home. So what these people are offering is a free storytelling by Zoom. And that has a huge effect because it now takes the load off working parents. So just by thinking creatively as to how you can create social value is really freeing and empowering because it means that you can create value even without donating hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think that's important. Hopefully, if we permanently have this mindset as to how can we use what we have to create value, this means that everybody can play their part, not just the large companies with a lot of accumulated profits to, to give. Our experts seem to agree that higher leadership resilience translates into better organizational outcomes. The responsibility for developing this resilience ultimately lies with the leader. But how do L&D and HR functions need to adapt to drive evolution across the business? Here is Simon Ashton, business psychologist and leadership coach, explaining why the role of L&D within most organizations needs to shift. I think that organizations that see L&D as just this separate, softer, oh, someone's not doing very well in this area, send them on a training course, that's L&D will forever stay 
in that. But if your L&D is seen as we are consistently looking at how do we improve in every conversation we have, every system that we that we work through, every opportunity is an opportunity to get better. That's a learning organisation and L&D then become almost a, a natural part. As we reach the end of our review, we have come full circle to see resilience as a multidimensional capacity with impact at individual, organisational and collective levels. Despite this complexity, resilience can be developed through proper insight and application. To close off, let's hear from Dr. Alan Watkins, neuroscientist, international leadership expert and best-selling author who calls for an honest reassessment of how development really works and why HR and L&D leaders need to reconsider how they invest in building resilient leaders and teams. So the really super uh, smart HR directors are emboldened by this and saying, you know, finally, we can start talking about people as they really are, not as human doings, but as human beings. And I think the opportunity here is to lean into well, what does development of a human being look like? So many HR professionals have been obsessed with learning. So in the L&D equation, it's been all L and no D. Mm. And what we're about is saying, no, no, learning is only 20% of the value. 80% of the value is in the development, which is the application of the learning to drive positive change, to drive evolution. That's where the game-changing nature of people intervention really sits. So again, the HR community is beginning to realize that it's not so much about learning, it's more about development. In fact, in the HR book we talked about, we're at this inflection point moving from HR directors, and many of the HR directors have started to become CHROs, uh, and at the cutting edge, CPOs, chief people officers. But in the future, they will become CDOs, chief development officers. And many of them will start to bake in development as a strategic advantage and become what's called in America, DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations. So we'll have CDOs, chief development officers, driving DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations. So because it is a game changer. You know, it's the difference between a six-year-old trying to solve a problem and a 12-year-old. When you're more developed, you can solve problems way faster. And because the world's speeding up, getting more complicated, you need speed and agility. And so that is given to you by increased maturity. So it's a strategic advantage. The more organizations lean into development, the better they're fit for the future. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.